Welcome to the third Ted Hughes Society podcast. Before I begin the podcast proper, I'd like to thank and congratulate James Underwood and all the staff at Huddersfield University who made the recent International Ted Hughes Conference such a success. On the Thursday night of the conference, the sad news came that Queen Elizabeth II had died. Simon Armitage, the Poet Laureate and a good friend and supporter of society, wrote a poem in tribute to the Queen, a double acrostic, a puzzle in two stanzas. The first letter of each line of both stanzas spelled the name Elizabeth. The central image of the poem is the lily of the valley. It was said to be a favourite flower of the Queen, but the name lily of the valley recalls her private family pet name, Lilibet. For those who may not have heard or read the poem yet, here is a reading of Floral Tribute by Simon Armitage. Evening will come, however determined the late afternoon. Limes and oaks in their last green flush pearled in September mist. I have conjured a lily to light these hours, a token of thanks, zones and auras of soft glare framing the brilliant globes. A promise made and kept for life, that was your gift, because of which here is a gift in return, glove-wart to some, each shining bonnet guarded by stern lance-like leaves. The country loaded its whole self into your slender hands. Hands that can rest now, relieved of a century's weight. Evening has come. Rain on the black locks and dark Monroes. Lily of the valley, a namesake almost, a favourite flower interlaced with your famous bouquets. The restrained zeal and forceful grace of its lanterns, each inflorescence a silent bell disguising a singular voice. A blurred new day breaks, uncrowned on remote peaks and public parks, and everything turns on those luminous petals and deep roots. This lily that thrives between spire and tree, whose brightness holds and glows beyond the life and border of its bloom. This podcast is the third to be centred around Mark Wormold's outstanding new book, The Catch. His personal quest, retracing many of Hughes's fishing trips, through which Mark deepened his appreciation of Hughes's great skills as a poet and a fisherman, but also confronted his own relationship with the natural world and with his family and his personal history.
Ever since his school days, Ted Hughes was fascinated by myths, legends and tales of questing and enchantment. This interest was both acknowledged and encouraged when his grammar school English teacher, John Fisher, gave Hughes a copy of Robert Graves's brilliant and idiosyncratic study of paganism and poetic inspiration, The White Goddess, as a school leaving present. Later in life, Hughes would write to Graves declaring that The White Goddess was one of his sacred books. In his third year of English studies at Pembroke College, Cambridge, Hughes famously had a dream in which his poetic vocation was confirmed and given urgent impetus by the appearance of a man-sized fox, horribly burnt in some hellish fire, who warned Hughes, Stop this, you are destroying us. This meaning the academic study of English literature. Hughes obeyed and switched his area of study to archaeology and anthropology, where he took the opportunity to immerse himself further in myths and legends from many cultures, studying arcane beliefs and rituals and occult practices. These were interests which he pursued for the rest of his life. As Anne Skier has shown, Hughes's body of work can be read as an engagement with ancient bardic traditions, a poetic quest for wisdom involving himself and the many characters he created. In his award-winning children's book, What is the Truth, for example, even God himself is engaged in such a quest to discover the true nature of humankind's relationship with the natural world, and in particular with the animals which they keep as companions, or those they farm, hunt and harvest for food, and those they consider pests and vermin and kill without a qualm. As well as a particularly appropriate closing passage from The Catch, in this podcast we'll also hear three traditional stories from the Celtic traditions that Hughes revered, in which the never-ceasing, never-satisfied search for wisdom is combined in one with the magical world of the salmon, in another with that of the trout. In yet another, a child is cast away and rescued and enchanters engage in a shape-shifting battle to the death and rebirth. One of the distinguished contributors to the online readings that marked the publication of The Catch was the Devon-born author, storyteller and mythographer Martin Shaw. Martin reads from his version of the Irish legend of the Salmon of Knowledge, which he co-wrote with the American poet and critic Tony Hoagland. Martin has published collections of stories, books of his travels, and books about myths. These include Bard Skull, Courting the Wild Twin, Smokehole, and Cinderbiter, from which this reading of the Salmon of Knowledge has been taken. Let's jump into a story. Uh, I'll read it, because if I really start to tell it, it's like a concertina expanding and we'll be here forever. Uh, but I'll... It's from this book, Cinderbiter, uh, Old Irish Tales, uh, that I wrote a few years ago with my friend, the late Tony Hoagland. And it circles round the magic of the salmon. So the young Finn McCall, the great bard and warrior of ancient Ireland, is making his way from uh, a childhood basically on the run, and he's heading to Tara to claim his destiny. And when you get into that kind of trouble, 
that somewhere along the line you're going to meet a mystic and he ends up at the river Boyne uh, and he comes across uh, an old man who's fishing called Finnegus and I'll take it from there. He's filled with questions when he meets Finnegus who is a brilliant wise and kind man. So Finn starts his questions. Why do you live by flowing water? Because a poem is a kind of revealing and at the bank of running water, the poem is revealed to us. Well, how long have you been here? Seven years, said the man. A long time, whispered Finn. Oh, I would settle twice the distance for a good poem, smiled Finnegus. Have you caught good poems? What I was ready for has found me. You can't reach for more than that. Our readiness is our limit. Now, Finn, he just eats this stuff up and the, the questions keep coming. The poems have been even greater by the majestic Shannon or the Liffey. Well, they're good rivers too of which you speak, but they belong to different gods. The elder man leaned forward. A man of foresight did predict that I would catch the salmon of knowledge in the Boyne waters. This would in turn give me all knowledge. Well, what would you do with it? Asked Finn. That's a question with horns, lad. What would you do? I think I would make a poem, cried Finn. I think, spoke Finnegus, I think that is what would happen. So from then on, Finn jumps into an apprenticeship with the older man, but for various reasons, hides his name. The, lad, the, the man doesn't know he's Finn. He thinks he's called Demney. And the questions continue. They're gorgeous questions, bardic questions, Olav questions. How does the salmon get wisdom into its flesh? Not hard to answer, told Finnegus. Overhanging a secret pool, there is a hazel bush. Its ripe seeds drop from bush to pool and the salmon eats them. Flushed, the boy spoke. Could we not just track the sacred hazel and eat them ourselves? Oh no, such a bush could be discovered only by eating the seeds, those very seeds that can only be found by eating the salmon. Finn writhed, then wrestled out his patient. Patience, like all good anglers. They must wait for the salmon. Now one day, Finnegus came to where Finn sat, a basket on his arm, both spring and winter in his expression. What is the matter, master? inquired Finn. Look in the basket, lad. Finn gazed into the basket. Oh, it's a salmon, sighed Finnegus. It is the salmon. I wish you to roast it for me as I take a short walk to gather myself. Well, Finn cooked as never before, smoked on a wooden platter, the fish nestled between green leaves, a delirium of scent. Finnegus returned for his high moment and his eyes scanned his student tenderly. Did you not take just a little bit for yourself? I left so you may eat the fish, if so compelled. And the boy spoke proud and wounded. Why would I take another man's fish? Well, 
Youth rides the red horse of desire, spoke the poet, and even a taste constitutes its eating. At this, Finn smiled. Well, you know, it's funny you should ask. By chance, I may have got the merest flavour because there was a blister on my skin, not suitable for my chef's eyes. So I pressed down with my thumb and I placed that thumb in the cave of my mouth to cool the smart. The old man winced just a little. My love, tell me your name. My name is Demna, as I have said before. Your name is not Demna. Your name is Finn. Finn was startled, knocked off his perch. How could you know this without tasting the salmon, he asked. In that prediction of my catching the salmon, it was said that it would be eaten by Finn. Tears pricked the eyes of the young hero. No, 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 no. You shall have half this fish with me here and now. The bard trembled and stood back. No bone, no skin, no flesh I shall eat. This feast is yours. As I leave libation to the mossy gods of the underworld and the forces of the air. So Finn sat and he ate the salmon of knowledge, his master watching in the half light. And when it was done, a great tranquility swept into the frame of old Finnegus. It was quite the battle with that fish, he spoke. Finn said, did it give good account for its life? It did, but that is not the battle I'm talking about. The two men cleaned up and they made a fire. They drank tea and they sat out under a hundred thousand stars. Catherine Robinson is a scholar of Welsh literature who is at present a postgraduate student at Pembroke College, Cambridge, Hughes's old college. She's working on a doctoral thesis on the connections between Welsh literature and the work of both Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. Catherine retells another story of the gaining of great wisdom, but not by the person for whom it was intended. This is an extract from the Welsh legends around the ancestry, conception and birth of the great bard Taliesin. So I first became interested in Crow when I read Crow Goes Hunting, um, because when I read it, it seemed to replicate very precisely and very powerfully a medieval Welsh story about the birth of a bard called Taliesin. And that story had always meant a lot to me in my own life. And so I became really curious when I recognized it there in that poem. And it's a story about Taliesin, but it's also a story about another character named Morvran. And Morvran quite literally means cormorant, but Mor is sea and Vran is a lenition of Bran, which means crow. So many 20th century writers have translated it as sea crow or sea raven. So in the story of Taliesin, a sorceress named Credwen gives birth to a son named Morvran, who is, quote, the most ill-favored man in the world. Hoping to make her son so wise that ugliness won't matter, 
Caridwen gathers herbs and she boils them for a year and a day, after which time they will distill down into three drops of awen, which means inspiration. She hires a boy, Gwen Bach, to tend the cauldron. And when a year and a day have nearly elapsed, she and her son come back and sit by the fire, but they fall asleep. That awen finishes boiling and it, those three drops leap out of the cauldron and they scald the thumb of Gwen. So he sucks his thumb to ease that burn and he ingests the awen that was meant for Mordren. So Kredwin awakes, she's furious, she tries to kill him, but he turns into a hare and he races away and she becomes a greyhound and pursues him. He becomes a fish, leaps into the river. She becomes an otter and swims after him. He becomes a bird and rises up into the air. She becomes a hawk and pursues him. He becomes a grain of wheat and he drops down out of the sky into a heap of winnowed grain. But Kredwin becomes a hen and she finds that exact grain that is Gwyn and eats it. She thinks she's killed him, but nine months later, she gives birth to Taliesin. But that isn't the end of the story. Nor is it the end of Coridwin's malevolence towards the various incarnations of Gwion. Coridwin had intended to kill the baby, but once she sees him, she can't bring herself to do that. And so she puts him in a coracle, a small skin boat, and sets him adrift on the bay. He washes up in the salmon weir of Prince Elvin, and Charlotte Guest's translation of the tale of Taliesin calls Elvin, quote, the most hapless of youths, end quote. So when Elvin arrives at his salmon weir and finds that it has no salmon in it, he begins to lament his luck. But then he sees Taliesin, this tiny baby who is a very precocious baby because he immediately begins to recite poetry. And he says to Elvin, quote, in the day of trouble, I will be more service to thee than 300 salmon, end quote. And as it turns out, he is. There is yet more shape-shifting in the tale of the white trout, which is told by Liz Weir, a storyteller and writer from Northern Ireland. Before she became a full-time author and storyteller, Liz was a member of a very talented and courageous group of children's librarians who maintained the Youth Library Service of Northern Ireland. This included public events like annual book weeks for the children of the province, as well as regular story and reading groups in many libraries during those dark and frightening times of the Troubles. The White Trout is a legend of murder, lost love and transformation from the west of Ireland, which was one of Ted Hughes's very favourite places, an area to which he made plans to move on several occasions, although he never did. This story was collected in County Mayo by Samuel Lover, and I heard it from the telling of the legendary Alice Kane, who left Belfast and travelled to Canada where she was a librarian and storyteller, and it's dedicated to her memory. There once was a beautiful lady who lived in a castle high up by a lake. She was engaged to be married to a king's son, but a month before the wedding, the young man was murdered. His body was thrown into the waters near the castle. They say that that young woman nearly went out of her mind with grief. She shut herself up in the castle and was not seen 
day in, day out, week in, week out. But there appeared in the waters near the castle a strange fish, a white trout. No one had ever seen such a fish before and people said there must be some magic attached to it and so no hurt nor harm must be put on it. The fish swam there year in, year out, longer than the oldest people in that place could tell you. But then there came to that country an army of strangers determined to teach the people new ways. And one hard-hearted villain heard the story of the white trout and decided he would catch it, cook it and eat it just for the sport. Well, he fished and he fished and he fished and the fish knew no harm, took the bait and he pulled it from the water and he popped it into a pan and he cooked it and he cooked it and he cooked it and when he thought one side would be done he flipped it over. But there was no mark, no burn. So he tried the other side, he cooked it and he cooked it and he cooked it but once again when he flipped it over no mark, no burn. Huh, perhaps you taste better than you look, my pretty, he said. And he put the fish on a plate, lifted up a knife, and when he plunged the knife into the fish, the squeal that came out of it would make your blood run cold. And there rose up from the ground the most beautiful lady, with a crown on her head, in a long white dress, and blood pouring from her arm. Look where you cut me, you villain, she said. Look where you cut me. Oh, lady, he said, I didn't know it was you. How did I know it was you? Why couldn't you leave me alone, she said. Why couldn't you leave me alone to my duty? Your duty, said the soldier. My duty. I'm waiting for my own true love. He's to come to me by water. But if he comes while I'm gone, I'll turn you into a pinking and leave you to swim the waters as long as grass grows or water flows. Oh, the soldier didn't know what to do. What can I do? Put me back in the water where I belong. But how can I put such a fine lady? <gasps> he gasped. For the lady had vanished and there flapping on the ground was the white trout. He ran and scooped it up, slipped it back into the water. Now the water ran red for a while on account of the blood and then it ran clear and that fish was left to swim those waters probably still there to this very day. But oh, that soldier, he was a changed man. It said after that that he fasted three times a week and never again did he eat fish, not even on a Friday. And he lived in a cave and turned hermit and they say from that day until the day he died, he prayed twice a day for the soul of the white trout. We close this podcast once more in the west of Ireland with an extract from the final chapter of The Catch and the end of Mark's personal quest following Hughes the Fisherman and discovering perhaps more than he anticipated about his own love for fishing, his love of literature and about himself. In this reading, Mark recalls an experience on the River Owenmore in County Galway, which he shared with the eminent Ted Hughes scholar and poet Terry Gifford. Fittingly, for the closing of this book, 
It's a moment when the sighting of a pod of salmon is transformed into the wisdom of poetry. And this podcast ends with Terry himself reading the poem he wrote that evening on the Tumbiola Bridge in the west of Ireland. This is from the last chapter of the book. And it began as a day after a Ted Hughes weekend in Dunregan, which is the house that Ted and Asia and the kids had lived in for six weeks in 1966, which is now um, extended and owned by a wonderful um, couple called Robert and Anne Jostlin. Um, and it's in Connemara, the most stunning part of Ireland, really magnif magnificent. And the day after this conference, Terry and Neil and I went on the Connemara Loop. And the bit I'm going to read comes right at the end of that day, but not at the end quite of the book. We headed back. It was gone 10 p.m., but this was an Irish summer. Dusk was only now beginning to thicken, and my appetite for revelations was still sharp. So, Deirdre Madden's re recommendation having turned out so marvellously, which was to discover Oscar Wilde's fishing lodge, which we found, I now recalled what her husband, the poet Harry Clifton, had told me. On their way to Dunregan, they'd said, they'd stopped to watch a netsman at his surreptitious work, but seen an otter waiting just beyond the net for any fish he missed. That was at dusk too, at high tide. So having crossed the humped bridge over the Owen Moor at Toombiola, I pulled into the disused petrol station forecourt above the river as it eased out into its own small bay. We walked back onto the bridge, looked upstream. The river widened and in 50 yards or so made a leisurely bend inland. Across it flexed what I at first thought was the net, but realized was instead a length of black polythene pipe the lower boundary of the Ballinahinch Castle fishing, I guess. And then Terry pointed, hissed, Mark, an otter. <laughs> he pointed down just below the parapet. That's what Harry had told us to look for. And yes, there was a head in the water, then nothing. And then three, four seconds later, a head broke surface 10 feet to the left, out in midstream. And then a second after, in by the bank. Could that possibly be the same animal? Speed of light, shapeshifter. These weren't dark furred heads though. That otter in the bridge pool at Grimester and then that pair on the Tamar, there's no mistaking them. But then now again and again, all over the river within seconds, snouts were breaking the surface and then dorsal fins and backs and tails wriggling easily, dark water gray flashing silver as they did so. Salmon, a pod at least a dozen of them just in off the tide, which sheer luck had brought us to the bridge to witness, reacting to their first fresh water since last year at least. None less than four pounds in weight, I guess, some much larger. It was like watching a family on an outing, or as I watched them from above, jostling, easing alongside each other, frisking like a herd of sleek elephants or dolphins. Were they all feeling this return for the first time? Or were some old hands leading the way? I was too inexpert and the light too thick now for me to be sure. By now, this cup, the cup of this day was well above the brim. To see this quiet, murmuring, nudging, gentle form of what at Ashley we'd seen in all its fury falls with the salmon leaping. 
the working out of a purpose between salt and fresh, water and air, sea and river, self and the turning inward and onward of the urge to reproduce, return home. This shoal fresh from the tide, skittish, colts, bullocks, but relishing the fresh water, getting used to it, anadromous, too little pressure on their organs suddenly, the water lighter, less concentrated after the sea, and all of this within sudden reach. It'd be a good moment to fish for them, said Terry. And he's of course, and of course he's right. This resolute champion of the green, this friendly antagonist who had written to Ted in 1994, asking him whether he could justify the pain he caused to fish. It hadn't entered my head, but now that I check, there's no sign there, no private fishing. And if that really is the bottom of the Ballina Hinch fishery, I take my smuggler from the car boot in a minute and have slipped over the parapet of the bridge and between gorse bushes in another. I slot it together, thread line through the ring, select a fly, one of Roberts, and the line is looping out gently over the water and I'm among them, swirling, moving yards away. I'm standing well back, crouching, working line out, twitching it back and then stripping and wondering at, really wondering, in wonder at not frustration, why they're not taking. It would be just too easy. But then remembering what I'd at some point in the day been telling Terry of their diet at sea. So I draw in my line, snip off Robert's fly, and replace it with a cartoon shrimp. Remember Ted on the torridge that morning. Moisten, try and test the half-blood knot so that it really holds. Then send out line, first inching it, then more firmly rhythmically, and a touch, a brush, a murmur, and at last one is on. And the fish leaps, and I know if I land it, I won't kill it. I'm a catch and release poacher, a purist, and I play it from the hand, not the reel, and loops of line slip from my fingers, and the fish comes towards me, and it's gone. Every cast, then, for eight or ten, my line miraculously gentle for a change, the loops I make deft, easy, searching, Every cast finds them, brings murmurs and swirls and brief contact in the fading light with the family group now inevitably moving upstream. Whether they've been spooked by what one has just told them, chemically, of the sharp shrimp, I can't know, but Ted might. And then the puckering and skirls and swirls and thin dark movements cease. My line feels lonely searching an empty river and Terry looking up from his notebook tells me they're gone. I say, it's over. And he says, no, it's not, from the bridge, smiling, gesturing at his pad, his pen, his head. And he's right. It's just changed elements, moved into words. A shoaling at Tumbiola Bridge. They came marauding up with the tide, under the bridge between salt and fresh water, gathering themselves in the greatness of their condition, remembering this shadowed place, this taste, those far skylarks, this dark entry to the birthplace, the old underworld to be their graveled graves. Between peat banks, their decompression chamber, is a river risen by recent rains in the big bends, where they wimple their fins on the water surface in silver flashes of strength 
for the falls ahead. Fat from the sea, beyond feeding now, feeling that thrust upstream that powered them past the nets in the neck of the bay and around foul plugs from the pipes of white shoreline homes towards the leaks and overflows of small farms they must outrun and hopeful rods tempting with the flick of a handmade fly. Now they shoal at dusk under the fading furnace of the West.